I read a story this past week about a man who had crashed his plane in the desert. And as he goes wandering, thirsty, his, his emergency camp, canteen long empty of its nourishing water, the sun sucking the moisture right out of his body, he comes over a sand dune and finds a booth of a man selling neckties. He comes to that booth and he's like, do you have any water? He's like, no, but I have neckties. He says, I don't care about neckties. He's like, all you got to do is trade me your canteen and I'll give you a necktie. He's like, I don't care about neckties. I want water. So the man says, well, I guess I can't help you. So this dying, struggling thirsty man continues on, comes over the next huge sand dune to find there in the valley a restaurant with, with waterfalls flowing. And he comes walking up saying one word, water, water. The maitre d' looks at him and says, I'm sorry, sir, but we require a tie to be worn. At this restaurant. This is how we might often have sympathy for, for the Jews that were present during Jesus' ministry. Here they have what they desperately need before them. But somehow, especially the, the religious leaders and teachers, the majority of them of that day were missing what they needed to pick up somewhere along the way. Key issues of of who is the Messiah going to be and how is he going to have us deal with what we have learned before, what we have treasured, what we have built our life upon. The reality is that Matthew, as we are here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew describes Jesus as dealing with these key issues Right from the start. Now what we have covered so far in the Beatitudes and how the Beatitudes are are specifically coming down to persecution that Jesus' followers, his disciples can expect and how that persecution should not uh, cause them to, to become less salty in the world or to hide their light. That really has been the introduction to Jesus laying out the key issues of his teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least in how Matthew has described his teachings. This is why the body of the Sermon on the Mount turns to the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. And so we look here this morning at the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Imagine, if you will, that rather than sending his law at Mount Sinai with smoke and lightning and thunder and, and, and the, the old covenant as we know it, where Moses takes the, the blood of the, 
of the animal. I don't, can't remember if it's a goat or a sheep or a lamb, but anyways. And he sprinkles it on the people and he said, this is the blood of the covenant between your God and you. Imagine if instead of doing that, God gave an acorn. And it was an acorn that fell from the sky. And that was elevated and it was helped and it was held and preserved. Imagine if, if all of the teachers that had come from that point forward, all of the rabbis, all of the, those that were elevated in the Jewish society, it all came down to how should we deal with this acorn? How should we interpret this acorn? How should this acorn direct our lives? Because it has come from God himself. It's no less true of the law. Coming from God himself for his treasured people. The first issue that Jesus deals with in his teaching is what does he do with the acorn, if you will? The law, the Old Testament. And that's why he, he, he heads into it in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We can expect here that Jesus is still speaking to his disciples that are sitting near him during this teaching. As he, as he says, um, uh, truly I say to you. <clears throat> and anytime you see the law grouped with the prophets. Here it says the law or the prophets. Other times you'll see the law and the prophets. It's generally talking about the Old Testament as a whole. We won't go into that necessarily, but he's speaking to the entire Old Testament. He narrows down in the following verses to speaking of the law specifically. I don't know if that's significant or not, but he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19 opens with a therefore, <clears throat> which generally means the reason why I'm telling you all of this is this reason. I'm getting to this statement. In these verses, Jesus is getting at how he has the authority to deal with God's commands. He's also warning his disciples about how others have dealt with his commands hypocritically. And he's telling his disciples that in following him as their rabbi, they're not going to be free to just make judgments on God's commands willy-nilly. He is going to show them how to deal with God's commands. And really, that's much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the book of Matthew. But as I said, so many of, well, really, the, 
the the responsibility, primary responsibility of a rabbi to his disciples in that day would have been, how do we deal with the law? Or in following our analogy, the acorn. What does it mean for our life? How should it change our lives? And first step to understanding the Old Testament through the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, is embrace Jesus as your Savior, teaching, saving, teaching master. This is what he says right off the bat. I am the saving, teaching master. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. He says, don't even think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There's terms used in these statements that refer to all three of these aspects of Jesus' person. He is saving. Much of what Jesus would fulfill from the Old Testament law had to do with his sacrificial death. And if you were with us through the whole book of Hebrews, which we were in just before coming into Matthew here, you understand what we're talking about. That, that the writer of the, of the Hebrews to the Hebrew people, because Jesus' sacrifice had been made, he actually tells them, therefore, no sacrifice is available any longer. Even though the sacrifices were going on over in the temple, there's no longer any sacrifice available. This isn't because, oh, you're, you're in trouble. No sacrifice is still available to you. No, but because Jesus' final sacrifice had been made. He is our teaching master. And the rest of the New Testament consists in how God plans for the world to be changed by Christ. And what is the law of the Spirit? rather than the law of the flesh. He's master. Jesus teaches with authority and was totally above and beyond all teachers. We'll see this in the term truly, I say to you. We know from what Jesus tells us here that the Old Testament is and will be fulfilled in him. I'm not here to pick out what specifically the uh, parts of the Old Testament Jesus fulfilled. But like I said, the rest of the book of Matthew is going to teach us so much about that. I believe that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the law in his final sacrifice for sin, as I mentioned. Much of the kingdom reign that is foretold in the Old Testament will still be fulfilled in Jesus' return and his earthly reign, his physical reign from the throne of David will be fulfilled physically in Jesus' return. And so while much of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled by Jesus' sacrificial death and, and even as we saw, remember, uh, so much of the early chapters of Matthew, he uses the term fulfilled even at his baptism when John says, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let it happen so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. 
Jesus was already on the path of fulfilling what was necessary for him to be our Savior, according to the law. As you read the Old Testament, read it through Jesus. Even better, let Jesus be your authoritative teacher on the Old Testament. Ask him to teach you as your living teacher. The rest of chapter 5 will show us how Jesus fulfills the law through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not at all saying, oh, you don't need to worry about this command, you don't need to worry about this command, but saying, the law says this, but I'm going to tell you this. This is God's standard, way up there, over the horizon. And if you know Christ as your Savior, as we get to those commands, you'll sit there saying, yeah, that's what his indwelling Holy Spirit has been teaching me too. Not just warning against adultery, but warning against lust. Not just warning against murder, warning against hatred. Warning against pride. Warning against pursuing our rewards here from our acknowledgement from people. Rather than being concerned only for God's glory. He will show us how Jesus fulfills the law in us through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in us. We can also see from what we're told here that Jesus affirmed living by God's commandments. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Literally, when he says truly, literally the term is amen. So when some of you hear something that just resonates with you from, from the sermon or from the scripture, and, and if you say amen, what you're saying is that's truth. I agree that that's truth. I, I was fascinated to learn that of all the, with all the times that Jesus says truly, it's a... It's, uh, 31 times in Matthew, 25 times in, in the Gospel of John, even with some truly trulys in there. I was amazed to, see, to learn that no other teacher would use this term. It serves like a prophet saying, thus says the Lord, marking as what they are saying is not just going to be important, but have an authority as coming from God himself. It's not referencing any other authority. It's not saying, Rabbi so-and-so said this, or Moses said this. But to open with truly is saying, I'm about to drop some true truth on you. They're like, by whose authority? Wow. He must be saying it's, his authority. You know, we talk about something being pulled out of thin air. And when he says this, he says, not an iota or a dot. These are the smallest markings of the language. Uh, we talk about, uh, you better dot every I and cross every T. These would be along in those lines. Not a single one would be dropped out. 
um, Jewish tradition had uh, an emphasis on this, so much so that that in God changing Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah, he removed a dot. And, and, and the thought was, oh no, that's, a, that's a, a dot that's been removed from the law, from, from the Old Testament. And then, but the tradition was, but when he named Joshua what he did, he put the dot in there, and that took care of it. I mean, so there was already a tradition among the Jewish people that, that the Old Testament was so sacred that not a marking of it should be lost. We've heard the statement, there's a new sheriff in town. Jesus is saying, there is a new rabbi in town, and he comes with his own authority. He doesn't have to say, uh, Moses says this, and rabbi said so-and-so said this, therefore my disciples are going to live this way. No, he's saying, here's the truth. And for a rabbi to say that, he's saying, disciples, live this way. Jesus speaks on his own authority as God and has told us that God's moral requirements still stand. He doesn't loosen a single one of God's moral standards. In fact, verses 21 through 48, as I mentioned, the rest of this chapter, he's going to show just how radical God's ethic is for living. Essentially, Jesus tells us not to think that he put an end to the teachings of the Old Testament. Instead, understand that Jesus fulfills them. His teaching clarifies their intent. His teaching transcends their original application. His person, his life, his death culminates their quest for a people brought into right relationship with God. Embrace Jesus as your saving, teaching master. So here we think again of of God's law as being like an acorn. And it fell from heaven. It's like this sacred acorn. It's kind of like, you know, I'm picturing like the same way that, that the Muslims are at Mecca with, with a meteorite that, that they believe fell from the sky. So Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the acorn. Like I didn't come to just take the acorn and say, I'm the new authority here, set it there and just bash it. He says, I came to fulfill it. So he plants it in the ground. What's it going to do? It's going to be fulfilled in its purpose. It's going to grow a tree that's going to stand for hundreds of years. It's going to produce other little acorns, isn't it? Not to take that illustration too far here. How ridiculous would it be for an archae- wow. <laughs> How ridiculous would it be for an archaeologist to show up hundreds of years later, just fascinated with the story? That's great and all. Jesus fulfilled the, the purpose of the acorn. But we really want to see the acorn. We want to see the original acorn. Let's dig under the tree and look for the acorn. I know he planted it here. He buried it right there. He'd be like, you know how this works, right? You put, the tr- you put the acorn in the ground, and that's where the tree came from. He didn't destroy it. He fulfilled it. 
It's no less ridiculous for people to strive to meet all the requirements of God's commands after Jesus' ministry. After the whole outflow of the New Testament and explaining the impact of his ministry and his person, his death and his resurrection, like the oak tree bears the fruit of millions of acorns over its life, we personally walk in God's commands. And how do we fulfill the law of Christ? By following God's commands as we yield to the Holy Spirit and allowing him to work in our lives. The higher inner work of the Holy Spirit was foretold even by the psalmist, even by David in Psalm 51, where he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Romans 8 informs us that the Holy Spirit is what is needed to meet the high calling of God's moral standard. Where we're told in Romans 8, in the, in the, in the uh, safety of there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we're told, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who work not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This does not mean that we live in a sinless perfection of our lives. It means that Christ lives out His life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Galatians 2.20 is saying. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live But Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So which categories of commands should be kept? Jesus is our Savior, Teacher, Master. And what he tells us is what we should listen to. And I'm not satisfying that here this morning. But he's going to satisfy a whole lot of that over the course of the Gospel of Matthew, that question. The second step to understanding the Old Testament through the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, is embrace God's standard of righteousness. Understand there's an, that re, as we read verses 19 through 20, understand it in the context of Jesus saying there's a new rabbi in town. And, and all the background of all these different ways that these different uh, scribes and Pharisees and rabbis would interpret the law and live out the law and say, okay, if you're one of my followers, this is how you're going to live out the law. So Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not, I'm sorry, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now understand, remember, that when, he's, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, which is throughout the book of Matthew, 
it's interchangeable with the kingdom of God. I want to say that because we have this tendency in the West that when we hear the kingdom of heaven, we think eternal destiny. We think a place called heaven where we will be able to be with each other and with other followers of Christ and and with God for eternity, knowing Christ as our Savior. But when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, you know, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is here, now. It's not just talking about eternity. It's talking about living out God's glory here and now, entering our relationship with God as our king. These scribes that he speaks of here, They were those who were to keep track of the human interpretations, the rabbi's interpretations, and and the growing traditions of how it is that you are supposed to obey the law. Their their writings, their interpretations are ones which Jesus, when he heals a man on the Sabbath, they're like, you're not supposed to do that. He's like, by whose interpretation? Well, some scribe would have uh, interpreted and further the understanding of the law along some way. That that would have been against God's law. These Pharisees that he mentions are men who were dedicated to scrupulous attention to the law and to the added traditions. But what would they need to do? They would need to put some blinders on. Because they weren't going to keep it perfectly. And they would, throughout, they would be like, oh, you know, the, 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 their disciples, their followers of, of these Pharisees or their rabbis would have been like, why isn't he obeying that part of the law? And the rabbi would have to justify, well, that, that one doesn't really matter. According to their blind spots. Specifically, verse 19 challenges us of God's standard of righteousness for daily life. When, when Jesus says whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, I find it interesting that relax has the same root word as abolish, what he says up in verse 17. As the teachers concerning God's commandments, these teachers of the law were strong and weak where it suited them. It's kind of like when Mark Twain uh, said that good sportsmanship means not picking up a lost golf ball. Until it stops rolling. So moral uh, relativism, relative morality. Well, well, it depends on the situation. Is is what uh, people we tend to do, and in the same way, these Pharisees, oh, you know, realizing, oh, just I just broke that law. Well, the situation justified what I just did there, folks. And so their disciples would be, oh, okay, so in this situation, I don't have to follow that law. And Jesus is rebuking that sort of arrogance, that sort of self-righteousness, self-justification. He'll rebuke them about tithing on their spices and neglecting mercy or care for their parents. You know, we see this, God's higher standard in in the character qualities that we expect of leadership in the church, of elders. They're not just concerned, we're not just concerned with their claims or their beliefs. Even more about their convictions is what's concerned. What drives their behavior. They're to not be arrogant, not be drunkards, not be given to anger or greed or selfishness. 
In the same way, we're just giving that an example of how the Lord lifts that up as this is the work that God should be doing in the hearts of his people. And if someone is going to lead my church, they need to be exemplary in these areas. Grace should never cause us to justify sin. As Romans 6, uh, Paul deals with this sort of uh, thinking uh, that would have spun off of Jesus' teaching here even. Should we go on sinning so that grace might increase? May it never be, Paul says. The disciples are thinking the hypocritical examples that they had heard or seen. They, uh, they, the, the, these explained why they should follow these, this law but not need to worry about this one over here. The way that these teachers would say, oh, you know, as, I'm, as I've, I've probably said too much already. This law is the one you need to worry about. That one that I've got a blind spot to, don't worry about that one over there. Jesus doesn't say, so, so let go of trying to be holy. None of it matters anyways. He's not saying that at all. Into this space, Jesus tells them that God actually demands a higher form of righteousness. Legalism loves the idea of salvation by obeying a law. A formulaic way to be saved. Well, if you, if you follow this formula, you're in like Flynn. Actually, God's standard of righteousness, he shows us here, God's standard of righteousness for a relationship with him. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, Pharise- the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to fall into the emphasizing our soapboxes and minimizing what we excuse in our own lives. It's dangerous to teach others to do these according to our preferences. And if we should think that our obedience earns salvation, it's deadly. Eternally deadly to think and to teach that obedience earns salvation. As James warns us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. When it comes to salvation, God's moral law showed us just how far short we fall. Paul tells us in Galatians that the law was a guardian, uh, which in our terminology would be like a nanny. When he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. By rejecting Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, the Pharisees were left to try to meet those requirements perfectly. And anyone that followed them would have their strengths and their prideful blind spots. So anyone that followed a Pharisee that said, well, all that matters is that you tithe off of this money, but it doesn't matter if you gamble with the rest then their followers coming behind them would say, oh, that's, that's the way to salvation. Just tithe on your money, and it doesn't matter if you gamble with the rest. Those that try to be a part of God's family by their good works will never be good. 
enough. We need a righteousness that is not our own to enter the kingdom of God. It requires the very righteousness of God himself to be applied to our account. And what we celebrate next week in the resurrection is God saying, payment approved. Your sin was paid for. No need to work for it. We need a righteousness that is far above even the scribes and the Pharisees in their scrupulous obeyment of God's moral law. But in reality, the only way that they could consider themselves as reaching any sort of form of perfection was to say, don't worry about that law, don't worry about that law. And we will be transformed even into a better form of personal righteousness through being a part of the kingdom of God as his Holy Spirit teaches and transforms us in relationship with him. Imagine, if you will, that you're walking underneath the underside of a tapestry. And all you see is loops and knots and, and all different colors in random um, ways. But then finally, you, you get to the second floor in which this tapestry is suspended and you look down and you can see the picture that the tapestry makes and it's a path. It's a map. And in the same way, that's how pre, prior to a relationship with God, receiving Christ as our Savior, having the Holy Spirit indwell us, God's moral law hangs over us. It simply limits us. It shows us it, it is a height that we would never be able to reach on our own, and it is confusing. But walking in a relationship with God, having His Holy Spirit indwelling us, those same moral commands, think of the Ten Commandments even, the summary of God's moral law, are laid out for us like a map, laid out for us like a path that we can follow. And, and, and directed by the Holy Spirit, we are saved by a righteousness that's greater than the law than the, the scribes and the Pharisees. But he also directs us into a life of righteousness that's even greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Not only are we saved and kept by grace, we're changed by grace. And God uses his Holy Spirit affecting our conscience as we come face to face with God's righteousness. And we come face to face with God's righteousness in his commands. For the person making disciples, which we should all be, the person that haphazardly rules out any of God's commands and encourages disciples to do the same is a dangerous teacher. And the TV is full of them. Podcasts are full of them. 
This could be done by an unsaved teacher who's leading others astray by formulaic salvation. As long as you do this and do this and do this, you're in like Flynn. Or it could be someone who is saved but is misunderstanding God's grace. And it only leads to bondage to sin. For the disciple, for those, for us as we are being discipled, we should all be training our mind for the conviction of the Holy Spirit developing as he develops a righteousness within us. Let me say something. If your home, if your uh, household is being ruled by your rules instead of God's, if your home is modeled after your desires instead of God's, you need to repent. And after repenting, you need to gather those that depend on you around them and say, there is a new sheriff in town. And we are going to follow his commands. The ESV study Bible says kingdom righteousness works from the inside out. Because it first produces changed hearts and new motivations so that the actual conduct of Jesus' followers does in fact exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And as we know from the transformation described in Romans 6, we read this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And as we learned recently from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 8.10 tells us this. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The writer of Hebrews explaining how the church today is living out the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31. I love how Warren Wiersbe summarizes these ideas when he says, Jesus made it clear that he had come to honor the law and help God's people love it, learn it, and live it. He would not accept the artificial righteousness of the religious leaders. Their righteousness was only an external masquerade. Their religion was a dead ritual, not ritual, not a living relationship. It was artificial. It did not reproduce itself in others in a living way. It made them proud, not humble. It led to bondage, not liberty. Embrace Jesus as your saving teaching master and embrace God's standard of righteousness walking with Jesus as your savior guided by the Holy Spirit let's bow our heads Lord thank you for your commands thank you father for your guidance in how to live. You've told us we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through your precious promises. And thank you, Lord, for relationship with you and your indwelling Holy Spirit that we can develop a greater sensitivity toward, that we can obey, that we can be convicted and comforted and guided by. 
And thank you, Father, that we can help sharpen one another. Fellowshipping and learning together. Thank you, Lord God, that you have not left us to fumble around for truth. But you have spoken into our lives with authority. And we live by the authority of your truth. Lord, please allow us to live this out together this week. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.